listening to Appalachian Words, the show about language in Appalachia and the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm your host, Jennifer Heinmiller. I am co-author of the Dictionary of Smoky Mountain and Southern Appalachian English, a historical dictionary that is over 1.3 million words long and covers everything from Ain't to Zonies Alive. If you're curious about that one or any of the others, please subscribe and tune in. Appalachian English is a rich language with a history stretching back hundreds of years, but outside the region there are more stereotypes than honest conversation about the culture. In an effort to bring this language and its history to a wider audience and dispel some of those stereotypes and myths, I decided to create this show. Each week I read and discuss entries in the dictionary and highlight Appalachian culture and history. I also talk a little bit about how the dictionary is set up and the process I went through of compiling it with my co-author. I welcome your questions, comments, stories, or any other message you'd like to send me, although keeping it PG would be cool. Thank you so much to those of you who have commented and sent me messages so far. I really appreciate your support uh, and all your feedback, and I'm really enjoying learning from you, so um, keep it coming. It's, It's been a lot of fun so far. So I look forward to hearing more stories in the future. So welcome back once again to the mountains and foothills of Appalachia. You are listening to episode five. So my apologies uh, for releasing this episode a little bit late. I usually record on Thursdays and as luck would have it, I had construction right outside my window from Thursday through Saturday yesterday. (laughs) So... It's Sunday right now, um, and I'm hoping to get this out uh, this evening for you. And I hope the episode will give you some food for thought for the coming week, uh, instead of the weekend in this case. But uh, sorry about that again. Life happens. I have a brief announcement before we get started. Appalachian Words is now live on iTunes and Google Podcasts. So if you like the show, please leave me a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. Um, it's a lot easier to find now, I'm hoping, being on iTunes and Google Podcasts. So, you know, pick your poison there, whichever you like. Uh, we're also up on some other hosts, uh, such as Podbean, Breaker, um, Anchor FM, who is the new host, uh, and a few other, uh, channels. So if you're curious, you can do a little search, uh, but every review would be awesome. So thank you in advance if you want to do that. If you don't like the show, no need to leave me a review. (laughs) No need to keep listening, actually, but I'll try to keep things interesting, so please hang around. Today, I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to get a little bit controversial. Well, maybe controversial isn't exactly the right word, depending on how strongly you feel about Shakespeare and or wrongly perpetuated language beliefs. Beliefs about language are not new. It's human nature to create categories of things for ourselves, including our own language and the languages of others. We just like tribes and boxes and putting things in those boxes or including people in our tribe or grouping them with another tribe. It's it's just what we do as people. And we love stories especially simple stories about things that are suddenly illuminating or bring a new perspective to something that we think we're a little bit familiar with or knowledgeable about uh, or something that seems to be illuminating. 
So sort of like those clickbait ads that you see uh, online, like this one simple change will help you be beautiful, witty, rich, and the perfect weight forever. All you have to do is click here and you click. And the secret is eating three pounds of kale a day and bathing in avocado oil, <laughs> something like that. Please don't do that. <laughs> if you do, please don't hold me accountable. I'll deny any knowledge of it anyway. There is one story about Appalachian English that seems to refuse to die. It's like the cockroach of American regional language studies. And that is Appalachian English is pure Elizabethan English, just like in Shakespeare. This is utter nonsense. All right, I realize I've just broken a few hearts here. If you've never heard this before, Welcome to what may be the longest running myth about Appalachia. If you have heard it before and you thought that it was true, rest assured you are not alone. There are people with PhDs out there who believe this, highly educated people who are still talking about this myth. So worry not, or should I say, don't be afeard. I choose this word of feared both as a joke because it is Appalachian English, and because it's one of the words that's at the center of this so-called debate. So a feared is pretty common throughout Appalachia, or at least it was historically. I'm sure you've heard this. In fact, our dictionary entry for a feared has a note that, according to Joseph Hall and the fieldwork he did, uh, as well as from other sources, this term was universal throughout the region of Appalachia as of the 1930s. And our earliest example comes from actually 1859, so quite a bit before that, from a book called Fisher's River, written by Hardin Tolliver. He wrote, I'm afeard you'll fall from grace if you shout too soon. We have another example from a little bit later, from 1874, that says, He volunteered to direct us to the falls, though he was powerful afeard of snakes. Well, side note, I can relate to that one. But then we move on about 50 years later or whatever. I'm not very good at math <laughs> into the next century at any rate with Horace Keppert's book, Our Southern Highlanders, which is a very well-known book. I believe they're still selling it at the uh, visitor centers for the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. All in all, a wonderful work. So don't get me wrong there. But he wrote... In this book, when the mountaineer boy challenges his mate, I dar ye, I ain't afeard, his verb and participle are of the same ancient and sterling rank as Chaucer. Then, from a little bit later, 11 years after that, 1924, we have a book called Land of Saddlebags with the following example. Afeard is more logical than afraid and was preferred by Lady Macbeth. I wonder if you can hear me rolling my eyes there. <laughs> okay, one more from 1938. Quote, nearly all of the older people use the Elizabethan, quote, afeard, while the children usually say afraid, I have noticed. So where did this come from? So we have two of these examples talking about Elizabethan English, one even labeling the word as exclusively Elizabethan, and one referencing Lady Macbeth, from Shakespeare's play Macbeth, of course, 
And Keppert, <laughs> Keppert bypasses Elizabethan England, goes straight back two or three hundred years prior to that to Chaucer. So he's essentially saying here that in Appalachia, Chaucer's English has been perfectly preserved. Now, Josiah Combs, a Kentucky judge and author in the late 1800s, got some recognition for spreading ideas like this. Here's a direct quote from Combs. The Southern Mountaineers are the, are the conservators of old, early, and Elizabethan English in the New World. He's even going back to Old English. <laughs> when we talk about Old English, you know, we're usually talking like prior to the Norman Conquest, like before the year 1000. So he's really taking it back. And I know this is going to be a bit repetitive, but this is nonsense. First of all, this assumes that language never changed within Appalachia. Spoiler alert, it did. And it continues to change because that's what language does. It changes. I hate to bust your bubble if you subscribe to the proper grammar rules, but grammar and words and meaning just change over time. It's a natural evolution and it always has been. So even if you have a community that's completely isolated, which pretty much doesn't exist anymore, the language is still going to change within that community over time. For example, uh, the other side of the world, Japan, was pretty darn isolated for hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, very isolated, both because it's an island and because the folks in charge just preferred it that way. They kept strong borders, which was pretty simple to do, being an island and all. And yet, the language still changed, and it developed differently in different parts of the country over time, particularly because, you know, you go back 500, 1,000 years, and it's a lot more difficult to travel from region to region. So you had these uh, regional variations, um, even within that type of setting. If you need more evidence, my predecessor and co-author and friend, Michael Montgomery, wrote some lengthy pieces about this, uh, as well as one of the top sociolinguists in the world, Walt Wolfram, who also argues that language in Appalachia, as in other places, is fluid and changes over time. But let's also keep in mind here that Appalachia was never that isolated. It was isolated, but it's not Japan. <laughs> we do not have it surrounded by a moat or a sea or anything like that. Now, granted, it was pretty tough to get to some of those communities up in the hills and mountains, and it still is, I mean, you know, to some extent these days. But we can't use that argument because over time, from the very beginning, we've had settlers coming through, we've had wars, we've had the logging industry coming through, literally changing the landscape, bringing in other people, shaking up the communities. We've had the coal companies coming in, You've had waves of migration, both prior to and after the Civil War, and as economic circumstances changed within the United States, any number of variables that have made it a constantly changing landscape. Again, it's human nature. That's just what happens. And keep in mind, the region of Appalachia is really only a few hundred years old at most. I mean, of course, not taking into account Native Americans, I mean European American Appalachian culture um, for our intents and purposes here. 
And this brings me to what I think of as Keppert's fatal flaw. Chaucer, if you remember from high school English class, was doing his thing in the 1300s. The 1300s. So think back to history class. When did the first Europeans come to North America? To the best of our knowledge, the late 1400s. So it makes zero sense that you had people from Chaucer's time come over here, establish their very own isolated communities that were somehow able to continue to survive and thrive with no influence from the outside world for hundreds of years and perpetuate this language. Even using the Elizabethan argument, like when you're talking about Shakespeare, he wasn't writing uh, until the 1500s. So we don't have evidence of Europeans in the Appalachian Mountains until the late 1600s at the absolute earliest, which still leaves a pretty darn big gap. So either they were coming pretty incognito and then just hiding out in the mountains uh, or something else was going on there, time travel. Maybe they had a DeLorean that we didn't know about. Who knows? I seriously doubt it, but if you have evidence to the contrary, please let me know. I would love to hear about it. But where did this even come from? We can most likely lay the blame on Combs and another guy called William Goodell Frost, who was president of Berea College in Kentucky in the late 1800s. He published an article in The Atlantic uh, in 1899 called Our Contemporary Ancestors in the Southern Mountains, where he talked about how the Appalachians' habits were not backward, they were just a preservation of the ways of times gone by. Okay, that's fair. I mean, it's true to a certain extent, partially due to necessity, since Appalachia has pretty much always been a fairly poor area and as such tends to get modern conveniences later than other areas. Um, and if you want to talk about geography, especially, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the roads were rougher and it was definitely harder to bring some, you know, new technology in. Uh, even, even these days, you know, you try to construct cell phone towers or things like that. It's a pretty rugged landscape. Um, but then he goes on in the same article to talk about the, quote, rude language of the people there and how it is actually just frozen in time. He was probably trying to get people to look at his region with a more tolerant eye. And I think he succeeded in part in that. But he sure made a mess as far as linguistics goes. We have later scholars saying things like kids in schools in Appalachia naturally like studying Shakespeare much more than kids in other areas. And they just take to it so naturally because it's what they grew up with. Well, as someone who went to middle school in Kentucky, I don't think these things are true. My classmates groaned about Shakespeare there as much as my classmates did in Ohio and in other places. I mean, unless groaning is a mild reaction and students in some other regions are actively rioting when they have to read A Winter's Tale? Doubtful. Now, a feared is quite an old word, so I'll give you that. We can trace it to Old English, so again, prior to the year 1000. That's pretty darn old. The English Dialect Dictionary, and when we talk about that, we're talking about England English. They have evidence of it being in general dialect use in Scotland, Ireland, and England, although the Scottish National Dictionary says it's been pretty rare since about 1700. 
The Dictionary of American Regional English has a note that it is now found chiefly in the South and Midland regions of the U.S. So, of course, all of this aligns, and it was pretty widespread at one point. And it's a cool word with a long history. But, as far as Shakespeare goes, did a little hunting here. The word of feared actually appears in his works only 31 times total. You might think that's a fair number, 31, but not when you take into account that Shakespeare had over 884,000 words published. So this is really a drop in the bucket. One of the rumors is that there's one specific community somewhere high up in the mountains where the people's speech sounds something like just out of Romeo and Juliet. Michael Montgomery used to encounter this belief all the time. And apparently he would always ask the person, point blank, where that community was. And mysteriously, none of the people ever knew. But several knew someone who knew someone who knew someone else who had witnessed it. <laughs> or it was a place that only the locals knew about. And if you knew, you just knew where it was. <laughs> this was one of the topics he used to get fired up about. I remember him uh, sitting with me one day when we were talking about the spacing between sentences. He was old school and adamant that there'd be two spaces between sentences. And I, of course, subscribed to the new style of just one. Hope I'm not breaking any more hearts with that one. But suddenly, I don't know what triggered it, but he remembered one of those encounters. And he asked me if I had heard the idea that Elizabethan English was preserved in the mountains. And... I said very enthusiastically, like the bright-eyed, naive grad student that I was, Oh yes, I've read research papers, and he cut me off saying quite heatedly, It's absolutely unfounded. There is no truth in it. It is not true, Jennifer. <laughs> I think my eyes must have doubled in size. I just didn't expect him to get passionate about it. Um, but us linguists tend to get pretty heated up over all sorts of things like that. Pro tip for you. Don't ever walk into a linguistics conference and start talking about the determiner phrase hypothesis unless you have the entire afternoon to devote learning about modern syntax. <laughs> anyway, I chuckle about this and I rant a little bit, but in truth, I love it. Because this is our language and we get to be passionate about it. We get to create myths and debunk those myths and form legends and try to come up with ways to explain these funky parts of our speech. And we get to watch as the language changes and we either ride that wave or we get left behind shaking our fists at the kids these days. This particular belief has gone on for too long, especially nowadays when I would bet that even the most far-flung communities have smartphones and Wi-Fi. But I am actually grateful for it. Combs and Frost and Keppert may have missed the mark, but in doing so, they romanticized the people in a place that might have otherwise been a bit unfamiliar and maybe even a little scary, or scarier than it otherwise would have been. And Appalachia still gets a bad rap. I certainly don't support the portrayal of the people as the noble savage trope, that they're just these misunderstood people who seem backwards and hostile, but they're actually pure and virtuous. They're just people, like you and me. People with their own culture and way of speaking. You may not think you have a particular culture or way of speech, but you do. For instance, at the beginning of this episode, I used the term clickbait. 
If you know what that means, it's a mark of your culture and your language in a very specific time and place. And if you haven't heard it before, but you can still guess that it means something that sounds sensational or interesting in order to get people to click on it on a computer or other device while browsing the internet, you are also a part of that culture. All of us only know the cultural references that surround us, and it's not hard to see why a place that is a bit removed geographically and culturally from much of the country would have stereotypes that last for so long, despite so much evidence to the contrary. People simply don't know. And the romanticized idea is really beautiful and intriguing. I'm sure it's helped out in part with the tourism industry over the past 100 years, which hopefully has helped out the region economically. I mean, beautiful mountains plus Shakespeare sounds pretty romantic to me. Although the only time I've witnessed this personally was at Shakespeare in the Park here in Asheville. Who knows, maybe Combs and the others actually overheard a performance and misunderstood the entire situation. <laughs> that would be the best linguistics myth of all time. Anyway, I'll wrap up here for this week. If you've heard of this myth and you can prove me wrong, please do. Honestly, I would love to have evidence so that I could believe it. As always, though, if you have other stories, questions, comments, or suggestions, please drop me a line at appalachian.dictionary at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Until next week, fare thee well. <laughs>